This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360, what House Republicans are saying now that they've learned their star witness in the Biden impeachment inquiry, who's already been charged with making up allegations, says he got the dirt he was peddling from Russian intelligence. We're keeping him honest. Also tonight, what we're learning about the Russian-American dual national now being held in Russia and how a $50 charitable donation may have factored in charges that could send her to prison there for 20 years. And breaking news in the lawsuit brought by the parents of Gabby Petito against the parents of Brian Laundrie, the fiancé who admitted he killed her. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with breaking news. Just a short time ago, the president's brother, James Biden, finished up more than eight hours of testimony before the House Oversight Committee, investigating what some Republicans on the committee have alleged is criminal misconduct by the Biden family. And though that meant committee chairman James Comer was tied up for much of that time, the chairman has spent the remainder of the day dodging reporters' questions about the news, which broke last night, about their star witness in their case. His name is Alexander Smirnov. He was charged last week with lying to the FBI when he claimed to have knowledge of corruption by President Biden and his son Hunter involving Ukraine. Then, last night, court documents reveal that he said he got the bogus smear material from Russian intelligence. Now, we should say at the outset that he is only an alleged liar, not a proven liar, and his claims about ties to Russian intelligence are just that, claims. What is clear, though, is that nothing about all of this bolsters this guy's credibility. Yet House Republicans have made what he told the FBI, documented in what's called an FD-1023 form, the centerpiece of their impeachment inquiry. And in the day or so since the Russian aspect of the story came to light, we've taken the time to uncover yet more examples of just how much credence lawmakers have put in a man and in allegations so much in doubt now, tonight. This is direct evidence of naked corruption and bribery. This is the biggest political corruption scandal, not only in my lifetime, but I would say the past 100 years. Ultimately, accountability for what I believe will uncover the biggest political corruption scandal in our nation's history. This is the most corrupt president. You just have to read the FBI's FD-1023 form of the interview with the, with the president of Burisma to see that uh, Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden were, were bribing, were requiring from really extorting uh, Burisma to the tune of $10 million, $5 million for each one of them. I mean, come on. There, there's just too much evidence in it, and it's all documented. All documented, if by documented he means on a form used for recording raw and often unverified reporting from confidential sources. That is what an FD-1023 is. And though Republicans also say it was corroborated by then-U.S. Attorney Scott Brady, Brady himself told them that he only corroborated some of it. And most significantly, in that same House interview, he said he did not determine whether the underlying, underlying Biden bribery claims were true. He also acknowledged that his team never reviewed some key evidence that undercut the bribery allegations. Yet House Republicans, most notably Oversight Chair James Comer and Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan, they continue to tout this 1023 in Alexander Smirnoff's allegations, such as they were, even after he was arrested on the 14th. Here's Jim Jordan just two days later. The most corroborating evidence we have is that 1023 form from this highly credible confidential human source. Highly credible. CNN's Amano Raju cut off with J uh, Chairman Jordan today, asked him what he thinks now that his star witness is both an alleged liar and possibly a Russian asset. Mano joins us now. So his, 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 how did that go with Comer? 
Well, with Comer, he sidestepped questions all day long, Anderson. I tried to ask James Comer about all of these allegations, try to yell questions to him during the interview with James Biden. He would not answer questions. That is unusual for the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, who typically does talk to reporters about all the issues under the sun, especially this investigation. But Chairman Jim Jordan, who's also running this investigation, I did catch up with him this morning and tried to ask him, as well as other Republicans about the other thing they said, running with this unverified allegation that was memorialized in that FD-1023 form, and they tried to make the case that there were other pieces of information that were central to their investigation and that it was not reliant on these unverified allegations by this indicted FBI informant. And when I asked Jim Jordan specifically about his claim that this was the most corroborating piece of information that this, uh, that this FBI <coughs> informant gave, he indicated that there were other pieces of information that were critical as well. Listen. You said the 1023 is the most corroborating piece of information you have. It corroborates, but it doesn't, it doesn't change those fundamental facts. So now. It's not true. Well, so, okay, so it's, it's the, the FBI told us that this source was so, 14 years this source was a paid source by the FBI. When we, when we were trying to get the 1023, they told us, oh, this could jeopardize national security. But your promotion of a bribery scheme was false. Not at all. We're, 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 we're looking at the four facts I just gave you. Those facts are true. Absolutely true. If the whole thing was bogus and false, like it begs the question why it wasn't given to us earlier. I, I, I would probably reject your premise that like the 1023 was exclusively relied upon. Well, he's been indicted for that. It hasn't been demonstrated yet. And that last comment came from Congressman Andy Biggs saying that the uh, FBI informant, Alexander Smirnoff, has not been indicted. So that is something to consider, that these are just allegations here, Anderson. But the question is, can they convince enough House Republicans to move forward with articles of impeachment? At the moment, they have simply not done that yet. And this latest indictment only will undercut their efforts to impeach the president in the weeks ahead, Anderson. And as we mentioned, President Biden's brother testified behind closed doors in Capitol Hill today as part of the, the Oversight Committee's impeachment investigation. What did he say? Well, he made very clear, he was unequivocal, according to his attorney who just released a statement that Joe Biden had absolutely no involvement indirectly or directly with his brother's business dealings at all and contended that there were some questions that Republicans had about loans that were given to Joe Biden that were paid off by his brother, James Biden. James Biden testified behind closed doors today that those were simply loans that were given because he was underwater at the time, needed that kind of financial support from his brother. But he said there was no involvement with his business dealings. And the attorney of James Biden said that this is essentially a witch hunt and that they got nothing out of James Biden to connect this with Joe Biden. I did catch up with some Republicans afterwards who told me that they had credibility questions about James Biden's testimony. They did not give specifics, though, Anderson. And when I asked them, are there any links to President Biden from James Biden that he revealed in this closed-door testimony, they did not answer that question. Mm. All right, Manaraj, I appreciate it. I want to bring in CNN's Jessica Schneider and two people who have experience with confidential informants, 1023 reports, and Russian disinformation, former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe and John Miller, former FBI Assistant Director. So, Jessica, I understand CNN has some new reporting about this ex-FBI informant. 
Yeah, that's right. So, Anderson, multiple sources, they're telling our Evan Perez and Hannah Rabinowitz yeah. that it was as far back as 2020 where the FBI had reason to believe that some of these allegations were false. Now, before that, Alexander Smirnov really had been prized by the FBI. He worked with this particular handler for more than a decade. They talked daily. And, you know, most important, Anderson, Smirnov had very important relationships that could be of use to the FBI. He had relationships with corrupt foreign business officials, corrupt government officials, and crucially in the eyes of the FBI, FBI connections with foreign intelligence services. So part of his value was that he did offer this potential window into those intelligence services. But even with those credentials, the FBI was suspicious four years ago. Despite that, though, Anderson, there's no indication that he was actually ever polygraphed, which is typically a standard way the FBI does assess sources. So tonight, the questions do remain that if the FBI had concerns as far back as 2020, if they were unable in that time to corroborate Smirnoff's false claims that Joe and Hunter Biden were paid $5 million each in bribes, um, if they took action to benefit Ukrainian energy uh, company Verisma, if they knew that four years ago, then why did it take until this past summer for the FBI to be begin unraveling those alleged lies and eventually charge Smirnoff last week. That's going to be a big question for members of Congress in particular. Andrew, I mean, does it make sense to you that this guy wasn't polygraphed in all the years he was working with the FBI? Not just, I mean, before, not just from 2020 on when they started to have suspicions, but even before that. It actually does, Anderson. It's not something that the FBI does to every source. It's not a, no a normal part of the you know, periodic reevaluation of a source. It is done in some special cases when you have reason to believe that a source might be fabricating and you just cannot corroborate. You can't get past that, uh, that concern. You can sometimes use a polygraph as one, one of many tools to, to get to the bottom of it, but it's not something that's done in every case. Um, I think another thing that's being lost here is the fact that it, this source clearly had, there was a shift in the sort of material that he was providing over some time, right? We're told that early on in his long uh, relationship with the FBI provided, I guess, substantial assistance in criminal matters and had some uh, credits to his, uh, you know, to his record. And it's in 2020 that he starts reporting on these contacts with Russian intelligence officers and high level uh, Russian government folks. Um, if the if the Bureau did not believe, wasn't 100% sure of his reporting, particularly on the Burisma matter in 2020, they wouldn't necessarily mount an entire investigation to get to the bottom of that reporting if they weren't taking any action on it to begin with. So the peeling back the onion on that reporting really only becomes essential when Congress starts to demand a copy of the 1023, which the FBI resisted by saying the 1023 is raw reporting, it's been unverified, we don't know if this is true. Uh, but at that point, it's really the pressure by Congress that breathes life into this reporting, and then you have to get to the bottom of it. John, I mean, can you sort of break down how the FBI works with confidential informants and, and what, if anything, stands out to you about this This one? Well, sure. The FBI recruits a confidential informant. That, that informant gets an agent. That's his handler. And that agent may meet with them every day if they're in the middle of a case. But more often, when it's a long-term informant, they'll meet with them uh, once a month. Uh, that's when they'll get paid. They'll be debriefed for whatever new information they have. But... Um, as, uh, as Andrew was saying, uh, there's also a source validation process. Uh, once or twice a year, they have to go through the, you know, here's what happens if we catch you lying. This is your deal. This is how it works. Um, but they can also be tested. 
Polygraph is one way uh, in this particular case because the informant's story, not only the story he told, but the idea that they would pay a $5 million bribe in 2017 when Joe Biden was on his way out and would have no power, um, that they didn't mention that in the, in the meetings until 2020. I mean, they're looking at this reporting and they're saying there's something wrong with it. You don't really need to polygraph it. And, you know, while you would be investigating the background of it, this really came down to when Congress demanded that 1023 form, setting the precedent that you're going to start turning over informant information to people in the middle of a, a political squabble and the message that sends to every high-level informant. <laughs> the FBI was resistant to turn this thing over. I mean, they were on the precipice of the director, Chris Ray, being held in contempt of Congress. And it, it put the director and the bureau in a terribly awkward position. And at the end of the day, they handed it over. But Congress played this as, read this form. These are the facts. A 1023 is, it's what we do, Anderson. We go out, we take a notebook, we ask people what happened. Mm -hmm. But you have to check it out. It's raw data. And in this case, not only didn't it make sense, it didn't check out. Yeah. Uh, according to Jim Jordan, though, it was the, the biggest thing the they had. The smoking gun. Yeah. But I mean, the real core of this story, and we shouldn't miss this, is the turn it made from smoking gun of a $5 million bribe by an unsupported allegation to an informant who may have lied to this newest chapter, which is the important part. Was he flipped by the Russian intelligence services right. and sent with this information at the behest of Vladimir Putin yeah. to, you know, cast more dirt on Joe Biden, even with a story that didn't make sense? Or is that just part of a story he made up for some other reason? But the timing of it certainly suggests that's when Russia was very busy trying to influence U.S. politics. And Jessica, what more are you learning about the timeline of the information that came from this, this guy? Yeah, so before the indictment was even released last week, it wasn't even publicly known that it was, in fact, Alexander Smirnov behind these allegations. And as John Miller and Andrew McCabe ha have talked about, members of Congress had been pressing the FBI to hand over this information from Smirnov last summer. And that did put the FBI in a bit of a bind here because the Bureau did tell Congress that the previous information that Smirnov had relayed, it was credible, but that the information concerning the allegations against the Bidens was really this raw information uncorroborated intelligence. So again, right. because of that, those questions remain, you know, why the FBI let it go for years. And, and Andrew, prosecutors also said that Smirnoff has been, act, in their words, quote, actively peddling new lies that could impact U.S. elections after meeting with Russian spies late last year. I mean, that's stunning that, that this is still kind of active. It, it really is. And I, and I think it helps to kind of remind ourselves what the context is uh, in which the government has made those assertions. This is not in an affidavit supporting a, a complaint or in a, as part of an indictment. This was part of a motion to to uh, try to make sure that he was denied bail, which of course was unsuccessful. And what the government is saying in that motion is, this is a person who cannot be trusted. You cannot believe what he is saying. So they are presenting uh, the statements that he gave them in his post-arrest uh, interview where his, for the first time he raised this issue of having received this uh, story about the Bidens from Russian intelligence officers, they're not warranting that information. They're simply saying, now he's saying this, you can't believe anything he says, he therefore should not be given bail.
Andrew McCabe, John Miller, thanks so much. Coming up next, what we are learning about new action President Biden is considering to tighten restrictions on migrants at the southern border. Also tonight, a live report from Moscow. Details of the arrest of a dual American citizen, what she is now accused of, and how difficult it may be to actually get her out. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. More breaking news tonight, a sign of just how bad things are at the border and how much the issue may impact the presidential race. Sources telling CNN that President Biden is considering major new executive action that would make it harder for migrants to seek asylum if they crossed illegally. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is at the White House for us. So what does the new executive action entail? Well, Anderson, sources tell me that the White House is looking at an authority that already exists in immigration law, and it gives the president power to decide in this context who is eligible for asylum. So the outcome here would essentially be limiting access to asylum for those migrants who cross the border unlawfully. Now, an administration official tells me that they are evaluating multiple options here and that no final decision has been made. The White House telling me in a statement, quote, no executive action, no matter how aggressive, can deliver the significant policy reforms and additional resources Congress can provide and that Republicans rejected. We continue to call on Speaker Johnson and House Republicans to pass the bipartisan deal to secure the border. Now, what the White House is referring to there, of course, is that Senate compromise that would have included some of the most or the toughest measures on border security in recent memory. And it was during those negotiations that President Biden himself said that he was open to shutting down the border if given the authority. This appears to be an extension of that, though the details remain on Unclear. And I will note, Anderson, that in 2018, former President Donald Trump tried to do the same thing using the same authority, but he was challenged in the courts. Now, I'm told lawyers are reviewing this new executive action uh, to see if they move forward with it, anticipating that it could very well also face challenges in court. It, it, so why is the White House decided to just float this idea? Why do they want this idea out there? Well, of course, this comes as that Senate border deal was tanked by Republicans. White House officials had been working on that with Senate negotiators for months, and it included these extraordinary powers to the Homeland Security Secretary to shut down the border if certain triggers were met. So now they're going back to the drawing board to see what, if anything, can be done in the executive. Of course, all of that will fall short of what it would mean if it was done legislatively. But also, Anderson, this comes during an election year. This has been a political liability for President Biden for 
years since he took office, and they know that it's going to continue to be going into November with former President Donald Trump making this a key campaign theme uh, going into the year. And so they're trying to set themselves up for success here and flip the script on Republicans. All right, Priscilla, stay with us. I want to bring in CNN's uh, political commentator and former special advisor, President Obama, Van Jones. So, Van, the executive action, if it's actually implemented, it might certainly anger progressive Democrats. What <laughs> other options does Biden have at a time when 79% of Americans, according to recent CNN polls, say the situation at the border is a crisis and a bipartisan deal can't get a, you know, a floor vote in Congress? Um, he doesn't have a lot of options. And look, here's reality. Everybody has a number uh, that is too big uh, before they say something's got to be done. Some Republicans, if one person came across their undocumented, they'd say shut the whole border down, build the wall, and never let, let the door be back open. For some people, it might be 10. Some people might be 100,000, a million, 5 million, 50 million. At some point, the number's too big, even for Democrats. And now we're at a place where because Congress won't act, Rep Republicans won't let Congress act, the number is too big of people coming across the border, even for Democrats. And so the president is going to take some action. Reality is the courts might strike it down. Also, to your point, he's floating these trial balloons to kind of see what the reaction is. But if Republicans are going to politicize the issue and then refuse to act on it, Biden has to do something. It's interesting, Priscilla, because the Republicans who have refused to act on it have said, well, there are executive actions the president could take. Obviously, this is is one of them. How does it compare to what the Trump White House tried to do before it was blocked by a federal court? I mean, is it exactly the same? And that is certainly some of the pushback that the White House can anticipate if they move forward with this. But in 2018, former President Donald Trump issued a presidential proclamation in which he tried to invoke the same authority known as 212F to shut down asylum entirely on the U.S.-Mexico border. When it made its way through the courts, what the court said was essentially, this conflicts with asylum law. You can't do this because people are entitled to seek asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. We don't know the details of exactly how this new executive action, the White House does it, would look like. But the key here and the White House pushback is that if there had been legislation that would have put this into a bill, into law, then there wouldn't be any way for it to be legally challenged in court. So former President Donald Trump tried to do it. He was stopped in court because of the law. The White House worked with Senate negotiators to change the law, and Republicans walked that back. If it had been part of the law, then there wouldn't have been any sort of legal argument. So that is the back and forth that's happening between the White House and House Republicans who refuse to take anything up if it comes anything short of what they themselves want to see done on the border. I mean, Vin, the, you know, one of the, the infuriating things about this is that many of the people who will be claiming asylum are just on the face of it not really eligible. I mean, they're, they're, you know, it's understandable why they're leaving their countries. They want a better life for their children. They want a better, uh, you know, better income. Uh, they're, they're fleeing a lack of, of security in their neighborhoods, but it's not political or religious persecution, which is, or the, uh, all the, the things, you know, asylum is a very particular thing that you are yep. claiming. <clears throat> yes. And, that, and that, that is the challenge that I think America's been facing. It's like somebody figured out some clever way to jump the turnstile uh, at the, at the uh, subway and kind of get away with it. And one person does it, two people, then pretty soon the whole su subway is just full of people who are just who are basically uh, exploiting a loophole. That's what's happened with our asylum laws. We put those asylum laws in, in place proudly. Uh, after World War II, when people were trying to flee uh, Hitler's uh, butchery and couldn't get out of the country and couldn't get here. 
And so we put those in place for a good reason, but now there are people who are just uh, using it and abusing it. It's got to be fixed. Uh, uh, Biden was willing to cut a deal. The Republicans would rather leave the border open for a political purpose than keep the country safe. Biden's trying to do something, and I hope he figures it out. Yeah, Van Jones, Priscilla Alvarez, thanks. Next, Wall Street uh, Journal reporter Evan uh, Gershkovich has been in custody in Russia now for nearly 11 months. Now authorities there have arrested another American. What we know about her and the allegations against her in a live report from Moscow next. $51.80, that is the amount that a Russian-American woman, a dual national, is accused of giving to a Ukrainian charity in the United States. And that alleged donation appears to have been the basis for her arrest in Russia on allegations of treason. Seen as Matthew Chance has more tonight on the arrest and the latest on the death of Alexei Navalny. He joins us now live from Moscow. So, first of all, who is this, this woman and what more do we know about, about why she's being held? Yeah, well, this, this is a, a woman uh, from the United States, from Los Angeles. She's a U.S.-Russian citizen. Her name is Ksenia Karelina. She's 33 years old. She came to Russia... Uh, back to Russia, because she's only been a U.S. citizen since 2021. She came back to Russia uh, earlier this year, in, in early January, to see her family in the city of Yekaterinburg. And she was arrested then uh, and has subsequently been charged basically with treason, which is an incredibly serious sentence, uh, you know, charge here, crime here, uh, and could carry a sentence of up to 20 years. Now, the FSB, which is the old KGB, which is sort of holding her at the moment, saying that since February 2022, uh, she has proactively collected money in the interests of Ukrainian organisations, which was subsequently used to buy arms and medicine and other equipment for the Ukrainian army. In addition, while in the United States, she repeatedly took part in public rallies in support of the Kiev regime. Those are the words of the Russian uh, FSB. There's that figure of $51 and, cent and some change uh, that she apparently donated to a, a US charity that helped uh, Ukrainians uh, during during this conflict. I mean, Anderson, part of the problem is that she is this joint US-Russian citizen. So when she comes into Russia on a Russian passport, it means that her US passport doesn't count mm. as far as the, um, the Russian authorities are concerned. And so it's much harder, if not impossible, for US diplomats to get consular access to her. And that's why we, we don't know exactly what her state is, what her condition is, and how she's doing right now. Uh, Alexei Navalny's mom has filed a lawsuit over the, quote, inaction of the investigative committee to release Alexei's body. What more do we know about that? Well, I mean, this is a, a court hearing that's being held behind closed doors. Uh, but it comes out of a frustration on the part of the Navalny family, in particular Ludmila Navalny, his mum, who's travelled nearly 2,000 miles to the far north of uh, Russia to try and get her hands on his body, recover it so she can have a funeral. Uh, he even made that emotional appeal a couple of days ago to President Putin himself to intervene and demanded uh, the, the, the body be returned to her so she could have that, that funeral and bury him in a humane way, in her words. But you know, those appeals have so far fallen on deaf ears. We still don't really know where Navalny's body is. And the authorities are saying it could be a couple of weeks now, uh, uh, from now, uh, until they're ready to even look at the possibility of giving the body over for burial. Mm, not the chance. Appreciate it. Shortly before word came of this latest arrest, we also learned that a Russian helicopter pilot who defected to Ukraine had been murdered, shot dead multiple times in a Spanish seaside village. Tonight, 
We know much more, and as seen as Melissa Bell reports, this killing came as no surprise to Russian state media. О судьбе Кузьминова говорят спокойно и уверенно. Приказ уже получен, а его выполнение вопрос времени. An eerie warning. Just months before police cordoned off this crime scene. A Russian state media journalist claiming last October that Russian special forces were seeking to retaliate against helicopter pilot Maxim Kuzminov, who defected to Ukraine last year. Kuzminov, now discovered, fatally shot in Spain, Ukrainian defense intelligence sources confirmed to CNN. His body found in a parking garage, according to Spanish authorities. Asked whether Russia had any knowledge of the death, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said Moscow had no information on the matter at all. Despite Russia's foreign intelligence chief speaking indirectly, saying that Kuzminov became a moral corpse the moment he'd planned his, quote, terrible crime. The crime in question, a daring operation last September that saw him fly his helicopter across the Russian border and into Ukraine. A decision Kuzminov explained to journalists just after arriving in Kyiv. If I had one question, why would my beloved homeland need such a war? I went to church, I lit candles with one wish that it would end as soon as possible. I realized that this is evil, horror and crime. Any war is a crime. Maxim Kuzminov said the trip took six months to plan. Then, once out of Russia, he used his voice to encourage more of his countrymen to do the same. Of course, if you commit what I have committed, you will not regret at all. You will be provided for with everything for the rest of your life. You will be offered jobs everywhere, everywhere you would want and whatever you would want to do. You will discover a world of colors for yourself. That world of colors, however, cast in the Kremlin's shadow. The warnings on state television reminding dissidents that Moscow's grip extends far beyond Russia's borders. Anderson, there have been so many Russian citizens that have died in mysterious circumstances these last few years. Maxim Kuzminov is nowhere near the first. There have been uh, businessmen, uh, the directors of uh, Russian energy giants like Gazprom and Lukoil. Uh, there have been politicians, journalists as well, who've died in circumstances ranging from their falling down a flight of stairs to being defenestrated, poison as well. Uh, and this inside Russia, but also, of course, outside from India to Spain and France in the past. Uh, one of the questions is why Maxim Kuzminov was not better protected. Now, we uh, spoke and interviewed a high-profile dissident here in France last year uh, who was only given police protection, 24-hour police protection, because French authorities had foiled an attempt on his life. It is simply too costly, the resources too great uh, for European uh, intelligence services to monitor Russian citizens 24-7. I think it's important to note as well, Anderson, that the Kremlin has denied any knowledge 
of what might, what might have happened to Maxim Kuzminov, uh, denying any knowledge and involvement in his killing. Anderson. Well, Sibel, thanks very much. Still ahead, RFK Jr. targeting some of the Democratic Party's most loyal voters and supporters of President Biden do not appear to be taking the Kennedy factor lightly. Details on that next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. The super PAC behind Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s longshot bid for the presidency launched new billboards across Michigan today in an effort to try to distance his campaign from Tim Mellon, who's a Republican megadonor who's given money to both the Kennedy super PAC and that of Donald Trump. The ad shows their faces as well as that of President Biden and says, let the best man win, Tim. Now, there are a response to billboards like this one from the DNC labeling RFK Jr. as, quote, powered by MAGA and Trump. New FEC filings show Mellon gave $5 million apiece last month to the super PACs backing both Kennedy and Trump. But as Democrats are focusing more on RFK Jr., he has his eyes set on one of their most reliable voting blocks. CNN's Stephen McCann has more. Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s independent run for the White House is drawing new attention from national Democrats. I think both Republicans and Democrats, the infrastructure and the leadership are, of course, going to be worried. From a Queens food pantry to a co-working space in Brooklyn, Kennedy is on the campaign trail, making a pitch to one of the most loyal constituencies of the Democratic Party, black voters. It comes as President Joe Biden's allies at the Democratic National Committee have ramped up an aggressive campaign to undercut Kennedy's candidacy, signaling the threat he could pose to the president's re-election hopes. Just outside a Kennedy campaign Black History Month event, a DNC billboard aims to link Kennedy to MAGA Republicans. There's a lot of black voters in this country who've been voting, who are taking uh, for granted by the Democratic Party. What do you think that you can offer black voters that Joe Biden cannot? I've spent 40 years working for economic development, for cleaning up the environment, for health care, uh, for black Americans and Hispanic Americans. I have a long, long track record of making that my priority. Aaron Freeman, whose family has long owned Brooklyn staple Sugar Hill Supper Club, has consistently supported Democrats. I'm leaning towards supporting Mr. Kennedy because his family has always been into the rights for the underprivileged. The economy is a key motivator for Freeman. He says his family almost lost their business during the pandemic. The economy and the people in these neighborhoods, they need proof. They need substance. They need to be able to see it and feel it not just hear it. While early polling shows significant levels of interest in Kennedy as an alternative to a 2020 rematch, it's difficult to know exactly how much of a threat Kennedy poses to Biden. Still, Democrats do not appear to be taking the Kennedy factor lightly. Earlier this month, the DNC filed a complaint with the FEC, accusing Kennedy's campaign and a super PAC supporting his presidential bid of illegal coordination. Our complaint alleges that it is federal law that they've chosen to ignore. 
after a super PAC backing Kennedy's campaign spent $7 million on a Super Bowl ad that repurposed the spot from his uncle, John F. Kennedy's 1960 presidential campaign, the DNC accused the independent candidate of being a Trump-stalking horse, pointing to donations the group received from Republican mega-donors like Tim Mellon. The ad also drew criticism from members of Kennedy's family. One member of my family whose feelings were hurt by that ad, and I apologized. Uh, I said that I was sorry that he felt that way. But I have no apologies about the ad. I think the ad was a good ad. Meanwhile, some black voters continue to weigh their options and are entertaining Kennedy as a real alternative. Black America truly does not have a friend in politics. The Democrats say, yeah, we'll help you, but you hurry up and wait. I can't say who I'm going to be voting for. We just need to focus more on working at home. Take care of home. That's my whole big thing. We're not taking care of home. We're taking care of the world. And it shouldn't be. Right now, as an independent candidate, Kennedy will only appear on the ballot in November in Utah. He still faces an uphill battle as he works to get on the ballot in every state. Meanwhile, when it comes to voter outreach, Democrats projecting confidence in their record, maintaining the rate of black business ownership is up, and arguing it's their policies that cut black child poverty in half and kept black homeowners in their homes during the pandemic. Anderson. Even again, thanks so much. Coming up, the, kid, the killing of Gabby Petito commanded national headlines, you probably remember. Her fiancé claimed that he killed her before he killed himself. Petito's parents then sued the fiancé's parents over emotional distress and other, uh, other issues. Tonight, we have breaking news. Word of a settlement next. There's breaking news in the case of 22-year-old Gabby Petito. As you may remember, she was reported missing after a 2021 trip with her fiancé, Brian Laundrie. Well, authorities found her remains in Wyoming. She'd been strangled to death. Brian Laundrie returned to his parents' home, then disappeared. His body was eventually found. He died by suicide, leaving behind writings in which he admitted responsibility for Petito's death. Petito's parents then sued Laundrie's parents, as well as the Laundrie attorney, over emotional distress and for withholding information. There was a mandatory mediation today and tonight where the families have reached a settlement. Randy Kay joins us with the latest. So what do we know, Randy? Anderson, I was in touch earlier today with Steve Bertolino. He's the lawyer for the Laundrie family, and he told me that they settled with Gabby Petito's parents. He also told me that the terms of that settlement will remain confidential. Now, of course, this case was settled as both sides were preparing to go to trial, which was coming up in May. And as part of that trial, they recently released these courtroom depositions, which were quite disturbing. They had disturbing details about what was done and, more importantly, Anderson, what wasn't done to find Gabby Petito. Hello, hello, and good morning. <laughs> it is really nice and sunny today. In the summer of 2021, when Gabby Petito and her fiancé Brian Laundrie were on a cross-country road trip in her van, Brian's father called his phone and said he sounded frantic. That's according to his father's court deposition, which was released last week, along with depositions from Laundrie's mother and Gabby Petito's parents. It's all part of an emotional distress lawsuit brought by Petito's parents against the Laundries and their attorney. Gabby Petito never goes outside. Christopher Laundry, Brian's father, recalled a phone conversation with his son on August 29th, the day his father says stuff hit the fan. He said his son was frantic and got very excited, 
repeatedly telling his father, Gabby's gone. He said his son asked, can you help me, and told him that he might need a lawyer. Roberta Laundrie, Brian's mother, said in her deposition, she spoke with her son that same day, and his voice was very upset, adding, I didn't want to push him, so we just said goodbye. When Brian asked for a lawyer, his father said, I asked him why, he wouldn't tell me. After that, Christopher Laundrie said he contacted the family's lawyer. What exactly did the Laundries think their son meant by the word gone? Roberta Laundrie said several possibilities ran through her mind, including that the couple had a fight, or perhaps her son had hit Petito and she was going to press charges. When asked if she thought maybe her son had murdered Petito, Roberta Laundrie responded, It might have gone through my mind. I can't recall what I was thinking at the time. Laundrie's father said he never thought his son killed Petito. I had no idea what to think, he said. The Laundries were also asked repeatedly why they didn't press their son about what had happened to Gabby. Not over the phone and not even in person, after their son showed up back in Florida on September 1, 2021, in Petito's van, without her. They both explained that their lawyer had told them not to question their son about Petito. I was told not to ask, and so I just kept Brian close, kept him home and safe, and didn't talk to him about anything and hoped for the best, Roberta Laundrie said. The distressing phone calls with their son took place three weeks before Petito's remains were found in Wyoming's Bridger-Teton National Forest. The Teton County coroner determined she died from strangulation and ruled it a homicide. In all those weeks that passed since the phone call with their son, the Laundries said they never contacted the Petitos and ignored all the Petitos' calls and text messages at the advice of their lawyer. All of this despite knowing Petitos' parents were desperate to find her. I'm asking for help from the parents of, uh, of Brian, and I'm asking for help of the family members and friends of the Laundry family as well. In her deposition, Brian's mother said, I was just concerned about my son at the time and that she figured maybe her parents would pick her up or could come get her. More than a month after Brian Laundry disappeared from his home, his body was found in a nearby swamp. Police say he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Alongside him, a notebook in which he admitted taking Gabby Petito's life, saying she'd fallen and was in extreme pain. He said he thought it was, quote, merciful. You've been following this case for, for years, Randy. I mean, how big a surprise is this settlement? I think it's a pretty big surprise, Anderson. Certainly the Petitos have seemed pretty resistant to settling with the Laundry family. In fact, as part of those depositions, uh, they included a deposition from Joseph Petito, Gabby Petito's father. And he said in his deposition, I want to make them hurt, meaning the Laundries, as much as they hurt us. He also said, quote, there's no amount of money that I would settle for, not a dime. So clearly that sounds like he was very resistant to settling with the Laundry family. But certainly as you look ahead to trial, Anderson, this was promising to be a very emotional trial, uh, likely a very expensive trial for both sides. So clearly they, they both seem to think that this was best in this case, Anderson. All right. Randy Kay, thank you so much. Coming up as family and friends gather in Texas to remember the life of 11-year-old Audrey Cunningham. A suspect has been charged with capital murder in her death. We have details on that next. This was the scene a few moments ago in Polk County, Texas, just north of Houston. The mother of 11-year-old Audrey Cunningham, as well as friends and members of the community, gathered near the river where the little girl's body was found just yesterday. Her mom called her perfect and said she was, quote, truly blessed to have given birth to such an amazing little girl. 
Today, authorities in Texas charged their prime suspect with capital murder. The alleged killer's name is Don Stephen McDougall. That's him, a family friend who was already in jail on unrelated charges. Investigators say McDougall, who lived on the same property where Audrey's family resides, had agreed to take the little girl to a school bus stop in the morning that she disappeared, but she never arrived. They say they have detailed evidence of his movements that day, including video and cell phone footage, as well as evidence that he lied about his whereabouts. They also have a rope that the killer used and say it was consistent with rope seen in McDougall's vehicle. Our hearts go out to Audrey's family tonight. That's it for us. The news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now. I'll see you tomorrow. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.